please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 17 through 35 this morning. John 11, 17 through 35. Please remain seated for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you please pray with me? Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things in your word. Show us Christ and his grace and mercy for hurting people desperate for hope. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the town I grew up in, uh, on the mission field in Mexico, a town called Jawara, in a state called Sinaloa, uh, there was an elderly man in a, a nearby village who was dying of cancer. Uh, We were serving among the Mayo people group. My family still serves there. And I remember going and visiting this man. He was living in a very small, dimly lit room, uh, laying on a burlap cot. There's a, uh, just remember, a single light bulb on the wall with a pole string. Uh, Very sad situation. And he was just laying there on this cot, counting the days. Just imagine the hopelessness of that. He didn't know the Lord, and he didn't have any hope. And I remember my dad and other members of our church started visiting him. 
And I, I tagged along. I was like 15. And I remember seeing them share the gospel with him. And then we left him a cassette tape, a cassette tape player. A few kids, that's like Spotify, but it's like brown tape that plays music. It's kind of crazy. Uh, we left him this cassette tape with the Gospel of John in his native tongue, the only gospel that was translated into his native tongue. And he listened to it. He listened to it again, and he became a Christian. He believed in Jesus, and then death didn't scare him anymore. He was excited about what was coming. He was facing the grave with confidence. A little while later, uh, his mother and father, I think they were close to 100 years old then, uh, I was 15, so everyone over 30 seemed like they were close to 100 years old. Uh, but they, they were elderly. They were, they were pretty old. And they came and they said, never, never in our lives have we seen someone face death with peace. And they said, we're not so young ourselves. I'm, I'm not kidding. They, they were pretty old. And they said, we want to know that kind of peace. It's incredible. They lived for four years after that, having accepted Christ, having placed their faith in him, and they then knew what it was to die with peace. There's this old French hymn. It's called, It Is Not Death to Die. Maybe you've sung it before. It is not death to die for those who believe in Jesus. And it's a great summary of what we're going to look at this morning. It's the title of this sermon from John chapter 11. It is not death to die. We're going to look at two comforting, confidence-giving truths in this story. Two comforting, confidence-giving truths. First, Jesus engages in our grief. And second, Jesus promises victory over the grave. Let's look at this first truth together. Jesus engages in our grief. This passage shows us how Jesus engages in our grief uh, really in two ways. Uh, he engages in our grief first uh, as a man. Jesus engages in our grief as a man. Just consider the very intimate message that Mary and Martha sent to Jesus, uh, recorded in John eleven thirteen. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love. Even though we affirm the truth that Jesus is truly God and truly man, uh, we tend to forget that he had friends who loved him, and he had friends that he loved. We forget that he had close intimate, loving friendships. So often we look at Jesus through the doctrinal lens, as we should. Uh, we should understand the doctrine of Christ. And through the doctrinal lens, we see Christ's uh, divinity, his atonement, his intercession, his kingship, and so on. Very important things. But in that, do we miss Jesus the man? Jesus the man who loves, the man who befriends, the man who cherishes. Even John, who relays this story to us, knew Jesus as the man who loves. In his gospel, he refers to himself only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And here in this story, we see that Jesus is a man who knows what it's like to lose a dear, beloved friend. Maybe that's uh, been you in this season. Maybe a family member. Maybe a coworker. Jesus knows what that's like. This passage was pretty powerful to me when I received uh, news of my uh, Grammy's death uh, when I was uh, traveling in Cuba a few years ago. My grandmother, call her Grammy, uh, she was suffering with cancer. 
And I remember I was traveling in Cuba. It was uh, the middle of the night, and I get this text message and a missed phone call, and I think, nobody calls you when you're traveling in another country. And it dawned on me that Grammy must have died before I even answered the phone. I'm sure many of you have received the phone call in your lives. Many of you have received that message. Uh, What's comforting is Jesus knows what it's like to receive that call. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one and a cherished friend. Verse 35 is one of the most powerful portraits, I think, of Jesus as the one who is cherishing and loving to others. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Just two little words, but a whole world of comfort wrapped up in those two little worlds for our grief and our sorrow. Jesus engages in our grief, not just as God the Son, not just as the third person of the Godhead, not just as the creator or the eternal word. He does that, but he engages in our grief as a man, as the word who became flesh and lived among us. The one who Jesus loved is dead, and God, the author of life, cries bitter tears over the death of his friend. Jesus weeps. And this is comforting when we're not sure whether our loved ones have gone to be with the Lord or we're just stuck in our own grief and our own sorrows to know that Jesus is not unacquainted with what we're going through. Our Savior is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's something else I want you to see in verse 33. Look with me at verse 33. Uh, This is another way that Jesus engages in our grief. He engages in our grief as a man... But also, as verse 33 indicates, Jesus engages in our grief as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the promised deliverer. Jesus engages in our grief as the Messiah. The ESV, which we've just read, says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. A far better translation would be something like Jesus bellowed by the spirit. It's a word from the world of horses. I think maybe some of us know something about horses living where we do. The word means to snort, literally to snort. I actually Googled it, and one article that came back said, snorts are equal to no in horse language. Who knew? Another entry said that it could be that they just had dust in their nose, and so I'm not going to let Google stand in the way of a good illustration. But, But in John 11, this word that's used, it's used throughout literature of the day to describe a horse flaring its nostrils and snorting in anger. Deeply moved doesn't quite capture the picture. Picture an untamed horse stamping and clawing its foot, flaring its nostrils. This word is a metaphor for intense anger, snorting and bellowing by the Spirit. The Spirit that empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry is stirring him up and moving him to this intense anger, this intense anger, to bellow and snort in anger. The Messiah, the holy, anointed, promised deliverer was angry in the face of death. Martha will tell Jesus in verse 27, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. So Jesus engages in our grief as a man as he weeps and as he feels that sorrow but he engages in our grief as the Messiah who bellows in anger against the grave. He's come into this world to conquer 
the grave that has caused him such grief in this moment. B.B. Warfield powerfully described what's going on here. I'll share his quote with you. He says, It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage. And he advances on the tomb, as one has said, as a champion who prepares for conflict. And Warfield sums up saying, what John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites on our behalf. Where Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, calling him back to life out of the grave, it is a battle cry against the one who is, has the power of death, the one who was a murderer from the beginning. We're focusing on the first part of the story, uh, but we really can't skip the best part of the story. So turn with me to uh, John eleven thirty eight. Jesus is still hot under the collar at the devil. He's shaking uh, the devil's grip on his friend, and he says, not this time you don't. And then picking up in verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face, his face wrapped with a cloth. Picture this scene. I don't know how Lazarus is coming out of the grave. Is he rolling out of the grave? Is he crawling out of the grave? We don't know, but he's alive. That's the point of this miracle. Lazarus is a, alive. And can you imagine what's going through Lazarus's mind in this moment? He's wiggling his way out, tied hands and feet. He can't see anything. He's got a cloth over his face and he's thinking, I knew it as he feels the daylight. I knew Jesus was who he said he was. I knew Jesus was our Messiah. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What an amazing rescue. It's why Jesus came. It's what we celebrate this morning. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus turned with bellowing anger at death, looked at the enemy, and gave him a little preview of coming attractions. Jesus engages in our grief as a man who weeps alongside us, but he also engages in our grief as our Messiah who has come to destroy the devil and his works. The one who will deliver us from all the sadness and pain. This miracle is a little taste of what's coming. The promised rescuer will crush the serpent's head and remove the sting of death. So we've seen that Jesus engages in our grief as a man and as the Messiah. But let's look at the second comfort, comforting and really confidence-giving truth from our text. 
He engages in our grief. Second truth, Jesus promises victory over the grave. Let's go back to this conversation between Martha and Jesus when they first meet on the road to Bethany. The gospel of life is wrapped up in this brief conversation on that road between two souls grieving over death. Look with me at John eleven twenty 20 and following. Let's remember the story. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. As we look at this second truth in our story, how Jesus promises victory over the grave, I want you to notice first the candid faith that Martha shows. Her candid faith. She expresses her concern to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Seems a little impertinent when you read it. This is a candid faith in Jesus. She does this with confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And this teaches us something about the nature of faith, especially in the midst of sorrow and loss. It's the picture we see in the psalm. Psalm 10.1, for example. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's candid faith speaking. We know it's faith because verse 12 of Psalm 10 says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why? But at the same time, arise. That's what's happening with Martha and with Mary as they're processing the death of their brother and their Savior's absence when he could have saved them. It's the sort of faith that we need in the midst of sorrow, a candid faith. We can cry out both why and arise at the same time. We need to remember that just like Martha and Mary and Lazarus wrapped in these grave cloths, Jesus is our beloved friend. He cherishes us. He loves us. And we can cry out to Him with honesty and with hope. So notice first that candid faith that Martha shows. I don't want you to miss that, but maybe most of all, I want you to see this. Notice the bold assurance that Jesus gives as he talks with Martha. The bold assurance Jesus gives. This story, I think, is one of the most heartbreaking encounters with death in all of Scripture. Death stings like a red-hot blade in this text. But the Savior is here to give bold assurance as he promises victory over the grave. When Jesus uh, tells her that Lazarus will rise again, he's saying more than Martha is hearing. He's saying more than she's hearing. He says, your brother will rise again. 
And Martha shows that she believes in the resurrection. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She acknowledges that there will be a resurrection. She's no doubt heard that already from the many uh, mourners that had come to be some small comfort to her. But she doesn't understand that the resurrection that she thoroughly believes will happen is standing right in front of her. That resurrection is her friend, Jesus, who is talking with her in her pain on that road. Jesus says to her in verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I love what Leon Morris said about the bold assurance Jesus gives in the face of death. He writes about what Jesus says. His words about faith and life are not a philosophical dictum to be critically argued. They are a saving truth to be received and acted on. This is not the time for philosophical proofs. Here's the irrefutable proof that what I'm saying is true. Here's the apologetics list that I want to show you, Martha. That's not the moment for this. The resurrection of Lazarus will be proof enough of that. Here, Jesus, he consoles Martha. And this is a moment for a promise. Not an argument, not a proof, a promise. It's a promise that calls for action because then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? When your heart is broken over death, do you believe this? When you're staring down sin and the open grave it's leading you toward, do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this? And as you're thinking about that question, I want to take a moment and point out the gospel geography we see in this story. Gospel geography. Sometimes getting a bird's eye view and seeing where Jesus is on the map and where he's headed highlights the gospel in amazing ways. This promise Jesus gives, it happened in Bethany. And we read in John 11, Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. When Jesus gives this promise, I am the resurrection and the life, on the map of Jesus' journey to redeem us, he is two miles away from the cross. This is a flashing, ominous red arrow pointing to his suffering to come. The valley of the shadow of death that awaits Jesus just two miles away in Jerusalem. There, Jesus will say, this is my body and my blood, the new covenant for you. There, Jesus will say to his betrayer, go and do what you will quickly. There, Jesus will cry out for the cup of God's wrath to pass. There, Jesus will cry out in anguish as the whip crosses his back. There, Jesus will cry out in pain and anguish when thorns pierce his brow and nails are driven through his hands and his feet. There, Jesus will cry out as the weight of your sins and of my sins are laid on his shoulders. And he bears our condemnation at the cross. There Jesus will cry out in candid faith to his Father, My God, my God, quoting Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me? And there Jesus will be laid silent in the grave for you. As you read John 11, there's this depth 
there's this weight to Jesus' tears at the death of Lazarus because of what is on the horizon. Those tears, as they drop to the ground over his friend's death, Jesus is counting the cost. Jesus knows what is about to happen. He knows Jerusalem is on the horizon. He knows what's coming. He's already said in John 10 that he will lay down his life. He said it. He's on his way. And when he raises Lazarus from the grave, he looks into that opening that Lazarus hops out of. He looks into this yawning tomb and he sees the Father's will for him to redeem you. It's in the death of Jesus that uh, death becomes an evangelist. Because of Jesus' death, when we experience death all around us, uh, it becomes a schoolhouse for our souls. It's not death to die for Jesus. That's why it's not death to die for those who believe in him. Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. The grave would hold Jesus only three. Hosea 6.2, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Hosea's prophecy and its fulfillment is previewed in Lazarus' resurrection. It's purchased by Jesus' resurrection. And when all of God's people are raised up on the last day, it will be finally, fully, and forever fulfilled. Hosea 13, 14, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? O death, where is your sting? On the last day when the dead in Christ are raised to life, then the saying of Isaiah 25.8 will be true, which Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That is our confidence. That's the bold assurance that Jesus gives us in this promise. It is not death to die for those who believe. It is not death to die for those who repent of their sins and cling to Jesus as their only hope. For those who cling to him as their only hope of salvation, it is not death to die. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, he says, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the question. It demands a response. This promise requires a response to that question. Do you believe this? Whether you're hearing it for the first time or the 50th time or the 500th time, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Father, we are so amazed at the comfort and the confidence we find in your word. And in our Savior who loves us, who knows us, and who fights and wins the battle with death on our behalf, so that by faith in Him, it is not death to die. What a comfort to know that He is risen just as He said. May we always remember this as we seek comfort ourselves and as we comfort others with the hope found in Jesus. In His name, in the name of our risen King Jesus, we pray. Amen.